exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, a gunman has opened fire in the center of the Belgian city of Liege, killing at least three people and wounding 123, according to the BBC. The man also threw grenades into a crowded square from a rooftop before killing himself, reports say. Officials said the attack... The attacker acted alone, ruling out terrorism. And in national news, if you're considering suicide, Facebook now stands ready to get you some help, according to NPR. The social networking site said today that if any of its 800 million users type a post saying they're contemplating suicide, the site will offer to connect them to a crisis counselor through the site's chat system. But the system requires human intervention in the form of a friend who clicks on a link next to a troubling comment. Facebook says it will send an email to the people concerned, encouraging them to call a crisis hotline or click through to a confidential chat with a counselor. And in Michigan news, last week's Wisconsin Travel Bureau used a mitten to represent the state, which sent Michiganders into a tizzy. Now the Travel Bureaus of Michigan and Wisconsin are joining forces in asking their residents to donate their mittens to local charities for the winter. We'll hear more on the mitten state debate from Dave Lorenz of Here Michigan later in the hour. Also on the show tonight, um, we will be talking to the father of Matt Epling about Matt's safe school law and anti-bullying law that was signed last week. But in the studio now, uh, we are talking about um, how MSU is taking part in a national initiative called the Better Buildings Challenge. The goal is to achieve a 20% reduction in energy use by 2020. Here to talk about the challenge is Linda Boomer, an energy engineer, and Bill Lotta, the assistant vice president for administration. Welcome to the show, everyone. So uh, my first question for you guys is, uh, how, how are we going to accomplish this energy cost uh, by reducing energy costs by 20% by 2020? Well, we've got many ways that we're going to accomplish this. We're working on it with our commissioning team. And you can think of commissioning as a way to tune up our buildings. Like if you tune up your car, you keep the tires filled to the proper Um, uh, pressure and the oil changed, your vehicle will run more efficiently and use less fuel. Same thing with our buildings. If we keep our buildings tuned up properly, the heating, ventilating, and air conditioning equipment running properly will use less energy. Um, Also, we've got energy educators out there on campus trying to encourage folks to reduce the use, to reduce the amount of energy. If you're the last one leaving a classroom or a conference room, turn off the lights. Um, the best way to save energy is to conserve, to not use it to begin with. Is don't waste energy, in other words. So um, we also have classroom consolidation going on, where if we have a building staying open till 10 o'clock at night because of one classroom, we're looking at ways that we can move that class into an adjacent building, shut down the heating, ventilating, and air conditioning equipment in that building earlier, and then we're going to save energy. So we have lots of different ways that we're attacking this to meet the challenge. And do you think it's a it's a far-fetched goal? I mean, have we kind of set goals for ourselves in the past, saying we'll maybe reduce by 10% by a certain time? And have we reduced our energy, um, you know, since? Because I know since maybe our Be Spartan Green campaigns or things like that going on on campus. You're exactly right, Emily. It's not like we haven't been doing this already with mm-hmm. Be Spartan Green on campus. 
Um, we've had a great uh, student participa participation in conserving energy. Also, um, we have the claim to fame of being having the lowest electrical consumption per square foot in the Big Ten. We've held that for the past, I want to say, eight years now. Um, and that's because of the efforts going that are ongoing. We continuously try to save energy. Can we do it? Yeah, it's a challenge, um, but there's still potential there. We can conserve more, and we're looking at ways to do that. I see. Now, what can you tell me a little bit about the Better Buildings Challenge? Sure, I can. I probably can speak to that, Emily, a little bit. Uh, this is a national effort, uh, national leadership effort that's jointly sponsored by the White House and the Department of Energy, and it follows from former President Bill Clinton's initiative, uh, the Global Challenge, the Global Initiative, where he's put where you pull together a leadership to work on world problems. So, for example, that that particular initiative addressed poverty, access to health care, education, but also uh, preserving the environment. A spinoff of that then became the Better Buildings Challenge that the Obama administration picked up with the DOE. And again, as, as Linda was referring to, it's a challenge nationally to try to reduce energy consumption in our buildings. If you take a look at all the commercial buildings and public buildings uh, throughout the United States, there's an estimate from the administration of spending about $200 billion a year on energy. Now, about 30% of the energy is estimated to be wasted. And so this initiative is to try to take a look at uh, example units or example businesses, private and public businesses around the country that will be able to reduce that energy consumption by this 20%. But in so doing, to show, uh, uh, I guess we call them showcase projects, the idea is to come up with a project or two that shows how we're able to get there, what are things you're doing to make that happen that others can learn from, uh, a process that uh, is repeatable over time uh, where the results are, are, can be replicated by other businesses and other organizations. So that's where it's coming from. Uh, and there are 60 uh, partners that are involved in this program, but only six universities. And the universities that have been uh, tied into this program has be, uh, uh, were chosen because of the fact they are sort of national leaders. As Linda described, a number of our initiatives, we're one of the very few universities across the country that are sort of leaders in, in environmental stewardship, sustainability, and energy, uh, looking at our energy reduction. So, for example, uh, we have been doing a lot of this stuff already. Uh, you're probably aware that you know, the addition, for example, to the new uh, uh, the nursing building, life sciences building, we're exploring and using geothermal energy for the very first time on that particular facility that will help reduce the, uh, the draw on our power plant, again, reducing our greenhouse gases and so forth. So, again, it's, it's a national leadership kind of initiative uh, that will, again, help uh, lead others to, to join in. So was MSU chosen by the President's administration to join in the Better Buildings Challenge, or did we volunteer? Uh, a bit of both. A bit of both. I'd say it's kind of a, a coming together. Uh, we heard about the program. It was, soft, it was a soft launch of this program last February. Uh, and uh, at that time, some of our colleagues were attending conferences uh, and were in Washington to, to uh, meet with the administration about their energy policies and where they were going when this initiative was described. Uh, and they became more, of course, of the things that we're doing and began to talk with us more actively about this so that in uh, November, early November of this year is when we made the formal commitment to join the program. I see. And you, I understand, went to Washington, D.C. for the kickoff. We did. And what was we that did. like? Uh, it was really pretty. It was, it was, first of all, it was a privilege to represent the university, no question about that. The, the good news is, is that our president, Luana Simon, was invited in the morning uh, to meet with Secretary of Energy uh, Stephen Chu, as well as President Obama and President Clinton, where they discussed some of the energy policy, energy direction going forward for the country. And in the afternoon, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, partners, uh, those of us who are involved in this program, representatives met with the DOE uh, to talk about uh, our initiatives, projects that are going forward, and also what are, what are some emerging technologies, new things that may be on the horizon that we can learn from over time. 
So it was uh, it was uh, an exciting and, and an enjoyable experience and a learning experience as well. And, and what other universities are involved in this project? Um, it's an interesting set. Uh, University of California, uh, Irvine is involved. Um, Allegheny State, Delaware State, uh, the University of Utah, and the University of Hawaii. I see. And um, it's, it's estimated that by reducing our energy by 20% by 2012, that it could save American businesses more than uh, $40 billion in energy costs. Is that an accurate number? Well, again, this is administration's uh, estimate. So, you know, estimates uh, do have a certain sense of tolerance, but they took a look at, you know, uh, sample facilities across the country. They took into account, I think, climate conditions, and that's how they came up with the figure on that. So, so what are some things that looking forward that, and I know, um, Linda, you're telling us what we've been doing so far to reduce our energy consumption, but, but in the future, now that we're in, involved in this Better Buildings Challenge, what are we looking to do to help uh, reduce our energy costs here at MSU? Well, the cool thing is we are a research institution, so we are looking at new technologies. We've got researchers on campus here who are, who are doing research in um, this area as well, and we're trying to find those folks and partner with them. Um, on renewable energy, um, and we are we look at what other universities are doing. So it's good to go together to go in on something like this where we can share with the other universities what are they doing. I know U- University of California is trying something called two-level lighting in their parking garages. So we're going to try that in the Wharton garage. Um, construction should start in about a couple of months after we order the fixtures. And what this does is. The lights will be on full when the when the ramp is occupied or there's people coming and going in the ramp. But in the evening hours, it'll drop down to half the level and use half the energy. Um, and that's all based on occupancy. It's a new technology on this two-level lighting. Um, the other thing that we're doing in our labs, air quality sensing. So, again, when the labs are fully occupied, we run a lot of air through there to try to, to um, maintain the fume hoods. When the people go away and the research is not happening in the evening hours, we can cut back um, and not air, not um, condition that air and run less air through the lab. So based on the air quality and actually sensing, is the air good enough in that space? Um, so things, new technology as it comes along, we want to try those things, um, be on the leading edge but not the bleeding edge, So uh, and conserve more. The other thing we're doing, I think, uh, Emily, is important is going back to the analogy Linda used at the very beginning of this, and that was having your car assessed, you know, make sure that it's, it's, uh, it's tuned properly and so forth. We're doing the same thing with buildings in the following way. We've, we've developed a process called building profiling. Uh, Linda and, and her team are going in through all of our buildings and taking a look at all the different systems, the heating, ventilation, air conditioning, uh, otherwise known as HVAC systems, the electrical systems, uh, the lighting systems that are bar off the electrical systems. And they're taking a look to see how all those are operating and trying to figure out where would we best invest our monies to begin to reduce energy across our building portfolio so that, again, this process of assessment will then help us spend those dollars wisely. Then, as we begin to experience some of the savings from that, take those savings and put them into other energy conservation measures. As Linda was saying, a a variety of those different uh, sensing technology, automatic control technology. We've just made a commitment to the university to put uh, uh, occupancy light sensors in all university classrooms uh, so that when there is no movement, no one is there, the lights will dim down and go off. That will automatically save energy. So it's things like that that come out of that profiling process. Well, in the studio, I have Bill Lata. He is the Assistant Vice President for Administration, as well as Linda Boomer, who is an energy engineer. And they were here to talk about how MSU is taking part in a national initiative called the Better Building Challenge. And the goal is to achieve a 20% reduction in energy use by 2020. Bill and Linda, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Emily. Emily, thank you. Pleasure to be here.
You're listening to Impact Exposure. First floor. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny the... <laughs> to see you. <coughs> I thought maybe we could... Uh... Would you ever want to... Um... <coughs> I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. No, <clears throat> I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. that's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing the button, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Prime Time, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Prime Time. Now back to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. I have two students in the room right now. They're freshmen at MSU, and they both grew up in Kenya, and they are here to talk about their journey from Africa to the United States. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you so much. So to avoid me butchering your names, can you introduce yourselves? Dominic Nangea. I'm Julius Queer. All right. So tell me, what was, what was life like in the area where you grew up in Africa? Uh, Tell me about your village that you grew up in. Uh, the village is Enosain. It's actually uh, to the southern part of Kenya in the Rift Valley. So um, it's a small village, the Maasai village, where um, it, it's a place where you find uh, it's like a bush area. You know, there's no roads. So it's kind of like very rural area. A very rural area. And what, is it, what are the schools like there? Um, the schools, uh, I'll talk of the middle school and the secondary school. We call it secondary school. Here it's called high school. Uh, it's different from the one I see here. There we have, uh, just school, like, it's, it's like, just located anywhere. Like, um, it's not particularly, uh, made like the way you see schools here. I mean, you can just walk across the, the forest or the bush and come across a school there. So it's basically a school during the week. Over the weekend, it's a different thing. It's you'll a different find, thing. Yeah, what you'll goes find, on the weekend? You'll find cattle grazing there. You'll find people playing around. So it doesn't look like a, It's only a school during the week. <laughs> I see. Yep. And did you guys have to walk to school? Oh, sure. We had to walk, especially for long miles when we were in uh, at the primary school. How many miles? Uh, probably six to eight. Yeah. We used to work for long distances, and we used to work quite early in the morning. We had to prepare. So it was kind of risky at times, you know, walking in the bushes. So what we could do is gathering into groups. Then, yeah, that's when you can walk. 
in groups. So a lot different than taking the bus here in the U.S., I'm oh, assuming. No, no buses here. <laughs> no buses. <laughs> so how many – was – did your friends growing up that were your age, did most of them go to school? Well, yeah, most of them went to school, although not all of them. Uh, it's probably like 50% of people try going to school, but they don't go to – they don't go through school, like to high school, to college. Mostly they go up to seventh grade. Most of them will drop from there. Go home. And is, is there a benefit in the village where you guys grew up in to graduate from, let's say, high school or your secondary school? And, you know, whereas most people would drop out during seventh grade, was there a benefit to staying in school longer? Uh, yes, there's a benefit. For now, people are beginning to see there's benefit in going to school because the world is changing. We are no longer like... Uh, in the in the in the old generation where school wasn't like a big thing for now you have to learn you have to to have papers to survive in the world i see so tell me about the opportunity that that led you guys to come to msu to study rather than staying in kenya oh about the benefits actually uh we can dedicate everything to to the perseverance we had in school and to the hard work, we really had to struggle in our primary school. That's when we got an opportunity to attend a competitive school outside our province. Oh, so like a, like, was it a, like a boarding school? It was a boarding school. So we could actually concentrate in our studies because uh, the burden of now gracing most of the time was kind of quit. And so the only thing that was left was studying. So we struggled, and lucky enough, uh, Olerongue, uh uh, promised us that if you guys are going to do uh, very well in the national exams, then I have to do for you something. And then who is Ole Ronge? Ole Ronge is our cousin. Okay. He's my uncle. Yeah. Your yeah. uncle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's the uncle who studied in Oregon, and so he kind of had uh, knowledge about the state schools. So he told us that uh, you guys, what you're supposed to do is uh, concentrate on your studies, work hard and yeah i'll see what i'll do for you and he got you so he made it so you were able to come to msu to study yeah we are able finally you know after the big promise now what was left was uh your perseverance and struggling in your studies and what are you guys studying at msu right now what oh, is your major oh right now i'm majoring in biomedical technology and laboratory diagnosis and what do you want to do once you're done? Uh, I have actually big plans of getting into a medical school in the U.S. and maybe going back home and helping my people. So you would want to go back home to, yeah. to be a doctor back there? I'm dreaming to be the first doctor in the area. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be good. I mean, what kind, of, what kind of medical issues do people face in Kenya versus here in the U.S.? Uh, actually, the main problem was malaria. Mm -hmm. And actually, we, we are losing most people through the disease. But when I came here, you know, I was very happy when I was told that ah, you are now relieved from malaria. You are no longer going to suffer from malaria. Yeah. And and how about you, Dominic? About Dominic, uh, what are you studying? I study agriculture business. And what so do you want? Agri business management. Uh, well, I want to go back home. And well, I now I've, I'm really growing. I've, uh, I've just discovered that I represent Africa. When I went to the classes here, um, I realized that there are so many big issues in Africa. Although I've been liking so much uh, about uh, agriculture, because back home, 
the, the economy is based on agriculture. A lot of it is from agriculture. So again, when I came here, it changed my mind, it changed my perspective. So that now I want to go home, I actually want to go back Africa and contribute in the food issue process. Like Kenya, um, uh, all the African countries, mostly, most of the African countries, we have food shortages in Africa. So I want to be the solution to that. I want to contribute to that place. People die every day, like you hear every day, you see every day people suffering from uh, hunger. So I want to be like, I, I want to make a change. So you guys have only been here for a semester, right? Yes, a semester. And what were the biggest differences that you noticed in the U.S. versus back home in Kenya? Oh, it's many. And, and what are some of the biggest differences? Yeah, technology and uh, the school itself, the, the way, I mean, we compare the Kenyan system and the system you have here, it's different. Mm -hmm. yeah. The other thing was the culture shock. I mean, trying to actually get yourself fully into the American culture, and you're just from the Maasai culture, so you could imagine the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and what what are some things that you really like about the U.S. that that Kenya doesn't have? Um, efficiency. Efficiency. Yeah. How so? It's, here is like everything is efficient. If you go to an office, you get uh, you're served in time. If you go to the bus station, you get in there in time. Everything. <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, this place is just nice when it comes to working. And and then people are very honest here. Uh, well, I've seen like two of my people can, are really willing to help you, and they're very honest with you. Mm -hmm. yep. Oh, yeah. Uh, one thing that I like uh, 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 in the U.S. right now is uh, the way people actually uh, address others and people are willing to help. Mm -hmm. Imagine a stranger coming to you, how can I help you? <laughs> Yet you don't really know him or her. So those are some of the things that I really like. And beside the technology, technology is quite high here compared yeah, to the remote villages, you know. Right now, if uh, nowadays I'm trying to actually improve on my typing skills. Uh, I came from a place where finding a computer will take you a month or maybe... A month? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, you really have to walk. <laughs> the nearest uh, center was around 70 kilometers. That is Kisi. So that's where we could go for, in fact, the whole application thing. That's where we could go <laughs> while applying to MSU. So we really encountered those <laughs> problems. But finally, we made it. Including reading emails. Yeah. Wow. So, like, so you'd have to walk a month to try no, to get an email? No, not walk. Actually, oh. we take a bus. Yeah, you oh, have bus. to a yeah. different town where you have to spend the night there because oh, you can't go gosh. and then come back at the same yeah. day. And here, people are just carrying around computers on the yeah, back. Oh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> so what are some things that you really miss uh, about Kenya? Um, basically, I miss the environment back home. We come from a place where it's like hills, mountains, some stuff like, actually, it's from the Rift Valley, so we have so many landscapes and stuff. I miss that nature and the people there. Oh, beside my uh, family, I really, really missed the Kenyan meals. So I remember in my first days, I had some problems and I had to see a doctor in Onlin. So here in yeah. the US with the food. <laughs> yeah. So the only thing the doctor advised me was uh to look for some Kenyan friends who are living in the US. 
Uh, and also to tie and take most of the fresh fruits. Okay. So those no, are some no, of the no McDonald's. Or no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, in the studio, I'm talking with Dominic and Kuya. They are uh, MSU freshmen here at, at MSU, and uh, they just came here for their first semester, and they are from Kenya. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. You're listening to Impact Exposure on 89 FM. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. Matt's Safe School Law is Michigan's anti-bullying law that was signed last week. To talk about the law is Kevin Epling, the father of Matt Epling. Matt was an East Lansing student who took his own life in 2002. He was an eighth grader who was a victim of bullying. So, Kevin Epling, thank you for joining us today. Good evening. Thank you for having us on. So how long have you been pushing this legislation? We actively got involved in about 2005 when we were asked by Representative Glenn Anderson to come on board. Actually, anti-bullying legislation in Michigan had started since uh, 1999, so it had been underway. Um, so since 2005, we've been very active in trying to get this done. And, of course, you know, 2011, we, we finally got it done. So now it's up to schools to have a policy and get those in place for the 2012-2013 school year. And so we're, we're very excited that it's, it's finally in place. So Michigan was the 48th state to pass this law. Why was Michigan so far behind compared to other states? Well, that's a good question. I think there was just a lot of uh, kind of political infighting over the years of, of who wanted what in the bill, um, you know, and how it fit with their own uh, political aspirations for individuals and, and, and parties themselves. You know, and Michigan had a lot of states that they could actually look at that had already passed laws that had passed us. Um, but we, we just seem to be mired much more in the politics than other states. And when I got involved in this, I was I was all about doing something for the children of Michigan. It wasn't about the adults. I mean, actually, anti-bullying, one of the biggest problems we have is with the adults, not the students. You know, the students want the change. We have we've had more adults causing more of the roadblocks than than anything else. And we're now I'm really glad that we're we're past that stage. And now we're into implementation. So why why would you say adults were causing the roadblocks? Well, I think a couple things. We had adults in the legislature who didn't think, you know, bullying was a big deal, you know, because a lot of us all have instances of bullying that we can relate to. So they didn't think it was that big of a deal because, you know, they lived through it. Friends of theirs made it through. It, was not, it wasn't a big thing to, to, to point out. The other thing they thought was a couple different things, that if we pass an anti-bullying piece of legislation – that would uh, prevent local control, that a lot of schools would get sued for having policies if they didn't follow them, that um, it was an unfunded mandate because this would take an additional time and, and effort on, on behalf of schools. So it would cost them money, and, and actually all of those never came true in any other state. You know, and, and that should have been the impetus to really get this done. But many of our lawmakers years ago, they were holding on to those those core things that we were giving that up. And, and this particular version of, of Matt's law actually gives a lot of leeway to the schools to do what's right and to do what's right for them, not just from the state's perspective. Yeah, I understand that schools now have six months to develop their own policies on bullying. Um, so how now with with this Matt's law, how are we going to hold schools accountable um, for establishing these new policies regarding bullying and, and to follow those policies that they enact? 
Well, one of the things, like like you mentioned, uh, schools have six months to come up with their policy. There's already a model policy in, in put out by the State Board of Education. It's been there since 2006. Um, schools can look at that as a reference to kind of get themselves going. Um, the biggest thing that I've always been about is that this law is, is really not to be punitive. It is really to put more power in the hands of parents and students. Because when we go into the implementation phase and these schools are looking to develop their, their policies within this six-month six period, we're really hopeful that the parents, this is their opportunity to speak up and to go to schools and ask what is going to be in the policy, how are you going to handle, you know, what you're being asked by the state, and also what are you going to do with, you know, some of the reporting requirements. This is a time for schools really to kind of not do something uh, behind closed doors, but to activate the student body and the, and the parents to become partners in changing how the school culture uh, is created. And that's where we're really given this opportunity. So if a school does not uh, come up with a policy, you know, they'll be in violation of state law. Um, if they don't do what is required in the policy and the parents have the state law, they can go back to the school and say, you're not doing X, Y, and Z that you're required by law to do, and, and why are you not doing that? So it does give parents a, a tool that they have never had before, and that's that's where you know we have to kind of hold the schools accountable in that regard is that we've given a lot of power to parents, and that's how parents and people should look at this law. So, Kevin, can you tell me a little bit about Matt and who he was? Sure. Matt was, you know, your pretty much average, everyday, 14-year-old young male student. You know, he was very outgoing. He loved BMX biking. He loved skateboarding, loved rock music. You know, he was learning how to play the guitar. And then he also had a very introspective side. You know, he, he loved art. He did a lot of drawing. You know, he wrote poetry. He wrote short stories. And um, he was one of those class leaders. Everybody kind of looked up to him. He started a comedy improv class, you know, for his fellow students. You know, so he was always wanting to do something for other people. And and sadly, on the last day of school in eighth grade, you know, the upperclassmen thought that they would do something to Matt. And they lured him out of the house. They restrained him around the corner. They smashed eggs on him, poured syrup on him, and basically gave him the warning of, of welcome to high school. You know, and this is how it's going to be. So that's devastating, you know, to a 14-year-old to have built yourself up and to have it taken away. And and really they, they did. The upperclassmen, they took that away in, in a 15-minute, in a you know, interaction with him. They, they took that away. And even though we talked with Matt exclusively about it, what he wanted to do, you know, he wanted them to get community service. Uh, the night before we were go to talk with police, you know, Matt ended his life, which sent, you know, our world upside down and what we were going to do. So that was the same night that he was kind of being hazed by these no, high schoolers? So this was, this was actually on. about 40 days later, you know, mm-hmm. so he had time to kind of really talk about it. He went on to get a job. You know, he was looking forward to driver's ed, you know, so um, – but there was probably something that transpired in those last couple of days leading up to going to police because everybody knew what had happened. You know, word, word spreads very, very fast. And once the police were got, got involved and this was now an assault and battery, it became something totally different. So we, we just were not sure what really happened in those last days leading up, you know, to Matt's last day. But uh, we just have a feeling something happened. 
And were, and were other students hazed in a similar way, eighth graders, you know, coming into high school by these high school kids? Well, one of the things we found is that it had been happening for a very long time, and police knew about it, and other parents knew about it, and teachers knew about it. It was just one of those things that, that happened. Um, and there were other kids that day that uh, were hazed in different ways, probably not to the extent that Matt was. Um, so... Uh, but, but that was one of the things that was really disturbing was we found out that it had been happening for some time and everybody just looked the other way. And, you know, as soon as um, we lost Matt, you know, my wife Tammy and I, we really decided to do something about this. And we were not going to be silent and, and to speak out and say that this could have been prevented. And, and somebody just needed to stand up and say something about it. And I, I think that's, you know, we see a lot of activism today with a lot of people standing up for things that, that just aren't right. And, and that's a good thing. And, and we, we figured, you know, to honor Matt, we had to do this for the safety of other kids. So how did uh, schools handle when, when you presented that, you know, kids are being bullied? And you, you kind of said that they looked the other way. But, I mean, did you approach the school and say this is what's happening? And, and what was their reaction? I think one of the very first things that uh, that we did is we formed, you know, an East Lansing Safe School Safe Community Task Force. And, you know, we brought in, you know, some teachers. We brought in some parents, some actual students, um, and also Glenn Stutsky here from Michigan State University to really start looking at the issue and how we would do things differently. And at the very beginning, there there was a lot of uh, pushback that this wasn't an issue. It was going to make things look bad, you know, for the school. But, you know, I just kind of felt in my heart this this was the right thing to keep doing. So even in, in the odds of people saying nobody wants to hear your story, we found a lot. There were a lot more people that did really want to hear the story and not just hear the story, but really want to use that to motivate change. And, um, you know, rather than being very upset with schools and police, you know, at kind of what transpired, I really decided to kind of work with them, you know, and, and become part of their structure and I can tell you, over the last nine years, we've seen a, a great increase in how schools and police departments are now looking at the issue of bullying. They really do understand, you know, it's one of the major problems in our schools today. So that idea has really changed uh, from, you know, nine years ago when we were basically kind of, nobody wants to hear your story. It's a sad story. There's something wrong with math. There's something wrong with your family. To okay, there's something wrong with a societal issue and we all have to work together. So that's kind of what I've been pushing for. And the, the law is one part of that. And like I said, this is now all about the implementation phase and getting those students activated. I do believe that students are the, the biggest piece of this puzzle. They're, they're tired of the environment that they live in, you know. And we have college students here today at, at Michigan State that I'm sure that still carry over, you know, some of their bullying attitudes. And we have adults, and that's why I said, you know, adults. If we don't correct it early, they're going to become those same adults that are causing the continuous uh, problems. Right. And I know Gretchen Whitmer, Senator Gretchen Whitmer, was, was you know, big mm -hmm. in, in backing this, yes, this law. And um, I, I watched one of her speeches that she did, um, and it's, she said um, at least 10 Michigan children in the past decade um, have have died, and, and those deaths were directly related to um, bullying, which I thought was, thought was very interesting. So how would you describe how schools in general handle bullying as it right now as it stands? Well, I think, you know, we know that we've lost those 10 students because we've actually reached out to those families when we hear about a loss. And we've talked with those families, and we find out more information than we ever have in the past 
about why these students are, are ending their lives. And bullying has played a big role. And that's kind of where the term bully side comes from is, you know, a suicide connected to an instance of bullying. Um, so we know that's happened. And those are only the parents who are willing to come forward. This is a very, very difficult situation to talk about when you lose a young one. And it's also very, very difficult for a school to deal with, you know, the, the loss of a teen, even though, you know, teen suicide is the number three killer of our kids. Schools have a really hard time dealing with this. And then on top of that, schools have a really hard time dealing with what bullying is because they haven't really had that discussion of what bullying is and what it isn't, you know, even amongst their staff, because you get different, different ideas of what bullying is. And also amongst the students of letting the students know. Of, of what are those those boundaries. And then today, one of the biggest things, of course, we have is cyberbullying. You know, the technology has come, you know, out of nowhere. Um, I was on one of the first uh, cyberbullying uh, forums in 2005, warning schools that this was coming. And everybody just kind of ignored it as long as, hey, as long as it, it happens off school grounds, it's not our problem. And the problem that caused is a lot of students knew they, they couldn't get in trouble for it. And they adapted the technology and they used it. And the students today are much better at the technology than the parents. And, and they just they ran wild with it because no one was nobody was checking the gate. Yeah, yeah I remember that happening in school when I was younger as well. Yeah. Well, and I and I say, and you're part of that generation. You know, you guys have grown up with the technology. Uh, you know, you have phones. Everybody has phones today. That's the, that's a mini computer. And and now we have third graders fourth graders, you know, that have iPhones. And, you know, why do they need them? Well, mom and dad want to get a hold of them. But do they really have to have that powerful of an instrument? Because a lot of times, you know, it's great that they have it, but we're not telling them all the danger they can get into with it. So now that schools have six months to develop their own policies regarding um, bullying in their schools, what are your what what do you hope that they include in these new policies? I think, you know, one of the, the great things that is in there is there's a point person that has to be uh, made in the school, you know, for, for handling these incidents. They have to come up with a reporting mechanism, you know, to the parents. If there's an incident, they need to contact the parents of what's going on. Because a lot of times in the past, if it was just, you know, bullying or teasing, the, the school may not even contact the parent until something violent happens. And again, going back, the, the idea behind this, this law is prevention. It's not about punishment. So we want schools to be very proactive in this. So I, hopefully they're going to engage the student body, engage the, the teachers in training, education. That's, those are two really key items that have to go into this. They have to look at the model policy, talk about what's in there that may not be in the law, and, and how do we handle this. And I do think, going back to the cyberbullying issue, schools really need to take a stronger stance on issues of cyberbullying because sooner or later, whatever happens outside the school will manifest itself inside the school. I think hopefully schools will really look at that issue as one of the, the major things to look at is that they just won't tolerate this. I think and uh, we're getting there. You know, some of the schools, you know, I go out and I do a lot of speaking at schools. I've probably spoke to over 15,000 students in the last few years about this issue. And schools are jumping on the bandwagon and uh, they're just saying, no, we are going to take a stand. We're going to treat this differently than we ever have in the past. And, and that's it. We're changing the culture, and that's, that's what's going to have to happen. More than a piece of paper, we have to change that culture. 
So how did you feel when this, when Matt's safe school law was finally, finally signed into law, and, and what are your hopes for this? Well, it was it was really a point of um, elation, you know, for our family and for Tammy and, and our daughter Kristen, you know, for for us to have worked so hard on this. And again, and thanking all those that have worked on this bill. I mean, hundreds of people have had their hands on this. It's not just ours. And I've always said, you know, this is maybe named after Matt, but it's for for all those kids we've lost and all those kids, you know, we are hopefully going to help. And I think that's that's going to be the legacy is we are going to be helping so many kids. And I, I think now that every school has to have a policy that they have to engage with the parents and the parents now have a tool to go back and ask questions of their school rather than this just being something secretive. Um, we've, we've brought it out of the closet, out of the darkness, so people can really talk about it. And when people talk about it, that raises questions. Questions then deliver answers, and, and that makes the change. So, and that, that's what we've always been about is making a change. Well, Matt's Safe School Law is Michigan's anti-bullying law that was signed last week. And uh, we just had Kevin Epling in the studio. He is the father of Matt Epling. And again, Matt was an East Lansing student who took his own life in 2002. He was an eighth grader who was a victim of bullying. So, Kevin Epling, thank you so much for coming in today and talking about Matt's School Law. Thank you very much, Emily. Now, back to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. Last week, Wisconsin launched its winter tourism campaign and used a mitten that incorporated the shape of Wisconsin into it. To talk about which state is really the mitten state is Dave Lorenz of Pure Michigan. Welcome to the show, Dave. Well, thank you. Nice to be with you. So uh, what kind of reactions did you receive after Wisconsin's announcement last week? Well, it was uh, quite an interesting week. Uh, actually, we didn't even know what they were doing um, until, I think it was Tuesday, we started getting some, kind of noticing some social media chatter on our Pure Michigan uh, Twitter and Facebook sites. Um, and out of the blue, we kept on getting, you know, literally hundreds of messages started to pop up uh, complaining that uh, Wisconsin was using a um, kind of a mitten to represent their the kind of geographical uh, geographical boundaries of their state um, so we decided uh, well we, we probably should do something about this only because we have a lot of really upset Michiganders and we didn't want this to turn out to be some nasty uh, interstate fight and so I, I noticed also today that you guys have d- made an announcement with with um, you know Wisconsin and Michigan, the travel bureaus in the states um, are, are trying to put together a campaign where um, kind of this battle between which one's the mitten state, um, shaped like a mitten the most, um, for for the residents to donate mittens um, to local charities for the winter. Well, actually, we're trying to turn this kind of silly situation into a um, you know a positive one. Uh, when the state of Wisconsin started using uh, a mitten to kind of represent their boundaries. Um, I can tell you, I happen to know the, the people in the Wisconsin uh, Tourism Office, and um, in reality, they weren't intending to try to take our uh, kind of iconic mitten image that we often will use as we describe where we come from for both the lower and upper peninsulas. They were just, you know, doing some kind of a, a strange a graphic for uh, to represent their state. But... And since it did upset so many people, uh, we thought that we'd have a little fun with it last week. So we, of course, started uh, a little repartee back and forth uh, using a lot of really horrible puns like, uh, 
you know, keep your hands off our mittens, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, had a good time. But we did want to kind of um, kind of turn this little rivalry thing um, into a positive situation. So what started out as uh, upsetting a lot of people and causing some frustrations, we thought we'd give people an opportunity to kind of show their pure Michigan pride and to uh, continue to vent a little bit over the situation by um, changing the whole situation to a mitten, glove, uh, hat, scarf, coat donation program. So both states were recommending that our residents bring, um, you know, warm clothes uh, to a warm shelter in their community. It can be the Red Cross, it can be a local church or any charity that might be uh, doing this type of program in Michigan. And we're really hoping people take advantage of this at this uh, this time of the year when we, we should be thinking more peaceful thoughts and try to be a little more forgiving and a little more patient. Uh, it seems to be an appropriate time that uh, we uh, kind of uh, let those Wisconsin people go and uh, forgive them for their uh, attempt to take the mitten, so to speak. But some people's argument was that it was kind of their way to get attention. So do you think that, I mean, it obviously brought a lot of attention. I think I was on Facebook earlier today, and I, I, about half of the statuses were this, was this new picture that was popping up made by the Michigan uh, Suburbs Alliance that, that has Michigan, um, you know, the shape of Michigan, but all made out of cheese. In the, in the, under it, it says, Michigan, the grand cheese state. Yeah, I knew that would happen. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's, it's inevitable. Well, um, you know, when they started it, it really was just an innocent uh, play on uh, graphics. Uh, actually, we did a very similar campaign about 12 years ago where in the fall we made both peninsulas. We had some graphics showing the peninsulas uh, as leaves, so to speak, to represent that it's a great place to go in the fall. Wisconsin did that this year where they've uh, every season they've been showing different um, graphics to represent the state. So it's, it's uh, you know, a typical advertising type thing. Uh, I will tell you that I believe it was a totally innocent thing. They weren't trying to do anything inappropriate. They were just kind of uh, doing a, a very uh, standard uh, graphic uh, demonstration, and uh, some people um, kind of um, uh, misunderstood, and, and we just thought instead of encouraging people to be mad about it, we might as well have a little fun with it, and that's what this has all been all about this last week. i got to tell you, uh, it's been pretty amazing, though. Uh, we had something like 25,000 people come to our website and vote because we put up a poll saying, okay, now who is the real Mitten State? And we invited our friends from Wisconsin to do the same. And out of the 25,000 people who voted, it was about uh, 84% who voted for Michigan. And then for some reason, uh, apparently those uh, cheesehead people have been wearing those hats a little bit too tightly uh, because there are about 4,000 who voted for Wisconsin. I don't understand that, but <laughs> hey, it's Wisconsin pride, I suppose. <laughs> right, right. So um, with with the mitten debate deci- um, aside, um, with I, I'm curious what's been going on with Pure Michigan, and do you have any ideas for traveling in the state for over the holidays? Oh, certainly. Um, you know, and that's that's really, you know, on our end, what we were hoping to do this entire time, and it, it really worked quite well. We were hoping that, that people would take the time to go to Michigan.org and, um, and do the voting, you know, which we're already done with. Um, and then while, we, while they're there, learn about all the great things happening at this time of the year in Michigan. Um, it was only because of all that additional traffic that we thought, well, we've got to take advantage of this and turn this into a charity program, too. 
But, of course, this time of year we are transitioning. We are almost um, into the official winter season, and some folks who had that earlier big snowfall uh, through the middle of the state would say we've already been there. But, uh, of course, there's not a lot of snow in the lower peninsula. There's a little bit in the upper peninsula right now. But very soon we'll be able to enjoy all the white stuff all over the place. We are uh, getting ready for January, which is actually Learn to Ski and Snowboard Month in Michigan. <laughs> so we're actually uh, trying to get a lot of information out about our Learn to Ski and, and Snowboard program, uh, where you can, you can, at a very discounted price, learn at something like 39 uh, of the different ski resorts all around the state and how to ski and snowboard. Oh, excellent. So I didn't know that. that. And um, it, it's a really great opportunity because I think a lot of people think once they get to a certain age that it's too, too late to learn these things. It's never too late. I actually learned at about uh, 30 years old, I think it was, and an 85-year-old man taught me how to ski <laughs> and his wife. So it's never too late. Um, we're going to be um, kind of promoting that in January and really hope that people get out there. And, and if you've never tried it before, try it. It's a lot of fun. Well, on the phone is Dave Lorenz. He is with Pure Michigan, and he was here to talk about the uh, the mitten debate. Which state is it, Wisconsin or Michigan, that looks like a mitten? And indeed, Michigan happened to win, as well as talking about what to, you know some things going up in Michigan um, during the winter season. So, Dave Lorenz, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hey, thank you. And remember, your trip begins at Michigan.org. And of course. We do happen to live in the one and only Mitten State. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning on the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. This week's Michigan Storytelling segment features Larry Neitzert. He is the author of Barn Stories. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. So tell me a little bit about this book, Barn Stories. It's a uh, collection of 14 stories that have a, uh, it's called Michigan Short Stories, but it has kind of a Midwestern theme. And although all the stories take are located in a barn, they really explain um, they speak to the universal um, problems that we all have. Some of them are humorous. Some of them are end of life. Some of them are meant to be a little more sad, but um, um, speak to humanity that we all share. Well, without 
further ado, would you be willing to read an excerpt from your book? Yes, I'll read. Uh, this is the second story. It's actually the first one that I wrote for this collection. It's called What to Do with Black Nylons. Boy, I'd like to wake up with her on my front porch. Me too. Yeah, that'd be cool, Ralph said, standing on his tiptoes, peering over, peering over his brother's shoulder. Henry and Fred sat on the bale of hay looking at the magazine while Ralph tried to see everything. Jake, who stood quietly next to Henry, had been offered a better viewing than Ralph. All four cousins were in the haymow of the Roush barn. Below, the house, Holsteins moved in the feedlot and occasionally bellowed, uh, about milking occur in another hour. The second cutting of alfalfa mushed the pungent odor of the cows below. The magazine article that the boys' attention was was titled Blonde Vixens in Your Doorstep. Henry, the oldest, and in fourth grade, was reading the captions under each photograph. It was not the narration, but the photographs that held the, their focus. Six pages of girls, of different pictures of different girls. Not girls like sat, that they sat next to in school. Not girls like their moms or women in church. Not even like the high school girls that rode the bus and sometimes smoked before the bus arrived. These girls were blondes and naked. What's a vixen, Ralph, the youngest asked. A vixen is a prostitute, Henry said. What's a prostitute, Ralph asked. A prostitute is a whore, you dummy, Henry said, and turned to Fred. Doesn't your brother know anything? No, he's stupid, Fred laughed. He doesn't even know what boys and girls do. I'm not stupid, Ralph replied, defiantly and moved on to the other shoulder to see better. He added quietly, what do they do? Jake Roush did not know what a vixen, prostitute, or whore meant, and he had no idea what boys and girls do, but he wasn't going to say anything and have his older cousins laugh at him like they did at Ralph. In fact, he thought the pictures were boring. He wouldn't take his clothes off and sit on the porch steps unless he had his bathing suit on. Earlier that afternoon, all four boys had been swimming at Millican Creek that ran through the back of the Roush farm. Afterwards, they had kicked through a pile of rubbish at the creek bank. Early in the summer, they had discovered a pack of camel cigarettes with only two missing and were again looking for treasure. This time, their discovery was a magazine, Black Nylons. It was Henry who immediately realized the value of the find and the danger. Taking the magazine, he raced across the hayfield to the, the barn with his younger cousins trying to keep up. Henry had successfully crossed the fence to the feedlot and was safely hidden in the haymow by the time Fred, Ralph, and Jake arrived. They quickly took their assigned positions, and Henry thumbed through the first pages of advertisement until they found the Vixen article. It was this that they were reading when the barn door opened below. Henry! Oh, Henry! Henry Cox! Henry jumped off the bale and he when he heard his mother's voice and the vixens fell on the floor. The other boys froze in terror as their aunt's voice. Coming, he yelled. Henry bolted for the ladder that ran from the floor to the top beam of the barn. Grabbing the sides of the ladder, worn smooth by years of use, he slid down and stopped halfway. Standing on the rung, he looked at his mother standing in the, in the doorway. I gotta go back up and get something, Mom. What do you need to get, she said impatiently. And what are you boys doing up there? I hope you're not up some of your foolishness. You better not cause any trouble for your Uncle John. 
No, we're not doing anything. We're um, 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 we're rustling. Uh, um, um, I, I've got to go back and open the chute door. It's too heavy for little Jakey to do, and Uncle J uh, Uncle John will need it if I don't open it. Uh, we closed it when we were playing championship wrestling. Well, hurry up. You chores to do at home and tell Freddie and Ralphie to come along. I'll drop them off on the way. Henry scampered up the ladder as his mother left the barn. He went to the bale where the three boys were still were frozen in tear. He picked up black nylons and thrust it into Jake's hands. Hide this, Jake, and don't let anybody see it. And don't and don't tell anybody. Ralph giggled while Jake obediently took the magazine. Henry turned towards the gingle, giggle. And if you say anything, I'll beat the tar out of you. Ralph giggled again, and this time Fred cuffed his younger brother the head. And if you say anything, we'll put your face in a cow pie like we did when you told on us for smoking. This time you'll eat some of that old cow pie. We see how you like the taste of that old cow turd. I didn't mean to tell Ralph protested. It was an accident. It just slipped out. You're a dummy. That's why you have an accident. And if you have another accident, you'll be sorry. We'll see. Uh, maybe we'll have to take you a nice warm cow pie on your cornflakes, Ralph, instead of sugar. Henry said, wouldn't that taste nice, Ralphie? Yeah, you'll be the cow, Ralphie the cow pie eater, his brother laughed. Jake stood silently in the magazine in his hand as Ralph began to protest. Henry, Henry, the voice was outside the barn, but the message was clear. Henry turned towards the open space between the mouths, raced for the edge, and screamed Geronimo as he jumped into the space. His arms and legs flailed, flailed as he disappeared. I'm not a dummy. It just slipped out an accident, Ralph again protested as he and Fred used the ladder to leave the hay mouths the conventional way. Jake stood with black nylons uh, as his three cousins left. Jake knew that there was there was a feed wagon below filled with bagged cow feed and that Henry would drop safely.